This is Big Sky Lead, a dive into the stories about how government and politics drive the direction of Montana. This podcast is from the reporters of the Montana State News Bureau in Helena, your eyes and ears on state government. It's produced by me, Tom Bridge. Our team brings you their reporting and the stories behind the coverage as the Montana State Legislature meets in an unprecedented session. In the first several weeks of this legislative session, lawmakers haven't balked at taking up debate on some of the most contentious policies they'll consider this session. A lot of the legislation isn't anything new for lawmakers who have been around the block before. Many of these bills are proposals that have even passed the legislature before, but failed to become law because of the veto pen of a Democratic governor. But now, a Republican holds that office. Even though a lot of the legislation and arguments for and against are familiar, that hasn't stopped there from being some fireworks and tense moments as lawmakers are working through all this. Seaborn, you've been covering the hotspot for all this, the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, it's known as a place where sparks can fly, and it lived up to that reputation this week. Can you talk to us through what happened there? Yeah, the House Judiciary Committee is it's a committee of 19 members, and we do tend to see a lot of ruckus down in that committee before things hit the House floor. Sometimes that's uh, just because of, because of really passionate testimony, and then sometimes um, – that might be over the rules of how uh, lawmakers and the public can interact during these hearings. And so on Tuesday, uh, we saw some commotion in the House Judiciary during public comment on a bill that would ban cities and local governments from enacting uh, sanctuary city laws. So we're talking about immigration. And during opponents' testimony, two people, actually a reverend and a rabbi, had brought up race and racism when we're talking about this immigration policy that um, really talks about law enforcement's role in that, in that, at the local level. And so um, committee chair, Barry Usher, he's a Republican from Billings. Um, He had stopped and shut down that testimony to try to separate race from the discussion on immigration. And that really rankled a couple members of the committee um, on both sides. I think the, the Democrats point was, the, you know, the need to apply that rule more fairly when Chair Usher talks about um, keeping race out of that conversation. Part of that is based in trying to um, keep the, I guess, the opponents or the, um, the testimony away from assuming the intent of that legislation and to talk about more directly what's in the bill. Um, that kind of created this discussion about um, whether or not that rule had been applied fairly in past hearings. We talked about uh, women's health care uh, in these committees a week ago, and um, Representative Lori Bishop had told me that plenty of people had testified um, suppositions into that hearing, and, um, and no one had objected at that point. So how did this actually happen? What was the dialogue that happened in the committee um, as uh, testimony was being shut down for a couple people. Yeah, you know, Reverend uh, Laura Jean Allen had begun talking about how she, uh, as a white woman, had grown up kind of conditioned to to trust law enforcement, and that the um, you know the worst thing she expects 
when she's been pulled over is just to get a ticket. And that's not necessarily the same um, experience for people of color. And that's when um, Chair Barry Usher had shut her down um, to try to bring the conversation back from race. And then, uh, so she stepped down. And a couple people later, um, Rabbi Lori Franklin from Missoula, she had uh, said a little more flat out, like this, this bill is rooted in racism and bigotry. And uh, that drew a pretty sharp response from Representative Derek Skies from Kalispell. He's a Republican who says, uh, you know, that that intent is not in the bill, so that it couldn't be brought up. And that's that's when um, things started to kind of go off the rails in the committee. So committee chairmen are given this latitude to um, limit what people can talk about in hearings, right? And yeah. And, and so why do rules like this exist? You know, I think the, the intent of this rule is to kind of keep hearings moving along. I mean, there are thousands of bills uh, the legislature has to process in this 90-day period. And so trying to keep hearings relatively, um, you know, concise is, uh, I think, the goal of the chair. And then also to, um, to apply that rule as fairly as you can across different legislation. Obviously it's not all about immigration policy and um, things that touch on race. And so um, the, it's not, it's not super common to see that, that rule applied in a way that just shuts testimony down. Usually it's, it's sort of a mention at the beginning of the hearing just to try to keep people within the rails. So do we have any idea how often this happens from committee chairs? You know, this is my first session um, and this is the first time I've seen it and I certainly haven't caught every minute of every hearing, but I think Holly probably has the, has the best context on that. Yeah. I think, you know, it pops up from time to time. Like Seaborn said, you know, chairs normally will let people know at the start of a hearing, like, Hey, stick on the bill. And I think too, sometimes we'll have people come up who have you know, legitimate gripe or frustration about something in their life. Um, and they might kind of go off on a tangent and that can take the committee a little bit off where they're intended. But I think what we saw in the committee meeting that Seaborn's talking about was a little further than I have seen in some past sessions, for sure. It was certainly um, kind of on display where that rule was being drawn on Tuesday. There was one proponent of the bill who had spoken earlier, um, who had said he had lived in this immigrant community in Massachusetts and um you know, he's lived there with a bunch of Central Americans. And then uh, at some point he said that uh, a, a big group of Mexican immigrants had moved in and he associated those folks with the uh, littering and drinking and driving and things like that, that had kind of cropped up afterwards. According to this guy, there was uh, no response from any of the committee members when he had made these claims about um, these Mexican immigrants who had moved into his community, but he did say it was part of the reason why he had left. And so lawmakers in that discussion about where that rule should be drawn really, um, really had a hard time kind of explaining or at least drawing that line between immigration and race. And Lori Bishop, um, who I spoke to after the hearing said to, to even try to draw that line, to, to try to decouple immigration and uh, race in a discussion is, is inappropriate, that, that that ignores the fact that um, racism is sometimes embedded in those conversations. So we're about halfway through the fourth week of the legislative session. Um, is this early for a lot of these 
contentious bills to be working their way through? That was a question I had had. And, you know, we, we know there's an urgency for these economic bills. That's something Governor Greg Gianforte had campaigned on and something um, the legislature, both Republicans and Democrats, have talked a lot about since the session got started. But I wanted to know from legislative leadership um, why we're seeing these these ideological bills so early. And that, according to um, House Speaker Wiley Galt, was in part to to meet certain um, certain dates. Certainly, they wanted the uh, to hear the the abortion bills um, this week on the House floor, so that that can coincide with the March for Life rally. Uh, it's going to be this Friday. Uh, that's a protest of the Roe v. Wade decision. Um, but other other pieces of legislation, according to Senate President Mark Blaisdell, is just sort of familiar language that had been introduced in past sessions. And so because that's familiar language, that makes it a faster process for the uh, bill drafters, for the legislators, for the committees that have heard these bills before and that have um, – sometimes passed through committee and passed through uh, both chambers, but then were shut down by a democratic governor in the past. And so um, I think those things are fast tracked simply for their efficiency in this legislature. That's right. That uh, a lot of this is moving through the process pretty quickly. Uh, We already saw four bills that would limit access to abortion, clear the house. And it looked like two bills that target transgender people were also on their way through but then that didn't happen, right, Holly? Uh, you reported on what was unex- an unexpected defeat on the House floor Tuesday. Uh, what happened there? Yeah, so we had House Bill 113, which is the legislation that would penalize doctors for providing or even making referrals for gender-affirming care to minors. It, the day before, had cleared second reading in the House, which is when they have all the debate between lawmakers on the bill. It passed second reading on a 53-47 vote. So you know, it's a pretty close margin. It was a lot closer than those four bills that would limit access to abortion that you talked about. Those all cleared on party line votes, which is in the House a pretty big split, 67 to 33. So after this second reading process, bills have third reading the next day. And normally that's just a procedural vote that reaffirms the vote from the day prior with, you might have a little wiggle room, might have some votes change here or there, but this bill, House Bill 113, actually ended up failing on third reading in the House on a 49 to 51 vote. So what changed with those legislators? I think you tried to track down some of them. Um, What did they tell you? Yeah, so who ended up flipping? We had representative, these are all Republicans, Representative Sue Vinton, who's the majority leader, and then representatives Denley Logie, Marta Bertoglio, Wendy McCamey, and Tom Welch. They all moved from voting for the bill to voting against it the next day. And then Representative Larry Brewster, he was a no and flipped to a yes. So me and a couple other reporters tracked down some of these representatives. I talked with Fenton and she said it was a really complex issue and it wasn't just a 24-hour process that led to this change. She said she heard from people, heard from people all around the state about their personal situations, family situations, and that informed her vote. She also said that this, you know, like what Seaborn was saying with 
a lot of these bills, this abortion legislation, the legislature has seen these bills many times and passed them many times. Some of this stuff targeting transgender people and minors is a little bit new. We've seen flavors of it before, but not the specific stuff. So Fint was saying, you know, it's new. The legislature is still working through it. She's still working through it. And so she ended up changing just with all those factors colliding. Logie said where he landed was he ended up deciding that the bill would be a medical reach to deny people access to medical care. So kind of an interesting flip. The bill sponsor, Representative John Fuller of Whitefish, he could try to get this bill revived. I haven't heard of any rumblings about that, but we'll see. And the companion bill, House Bill 112, which would have transgender women play in um, not be able to play in women's sports. That bill is up for third reading um, Wednesday on the House floor. So it'll be interesting to see that one had a little bit bigger margin when it ended up um, clearing second reading. So I, I think that one will clear, but would be a good one to watch. Is there any idea why um, there isn't the uh, unity of votes behind the trans, the, the transgender people bills um, compared to the anti-abortion bills when it comes to the Republican party, because they're both kind of making social stands and they're both restricting uh, what medical providers can do for people. Where's why, why is there a difference between the unity of votes on those? You know that I don't know. Um, I mean, I think what Vinton spoke to that these are kind of newer bills and that legislators are sort of getting a better understanding of them as they move through might be a part of it. Um, I think that a lot of the testimony against some of these bills that would have affected people who are transgender was, and not to say that the abortion bill opposition wasn't organized, but there were a lot of doctors who put together a pretty strong coalition that were reaching out to legislators to share personal stories. So that might have had some effect too, but I, you know, I, I don't know. It'd be interesting to talk to lawmakers about for sure. Another bit of news that raised eyebrows this week uh, was that the salaries for new directors in the Gianforte administration changed. Uh, Tom, what are the differences between this administration and the last administration? Well, yeah, Tom, uh, the, uh, Gianforte has been, um, nominating department directors. Um, they've been sort of trickling in for the last few weeks since he won the election. Um, he had set up these, um, task force, um, committees to help him, uh, vet candidates and things like that. And it wasn't really until, um, last week that we, we learned the last, uh, um, couple of department directors and, um, he gets to nominate those and then the Senate gets to, uh, gets to have a hearing and, and uh, confirm or deny those candidates. Um, and we've already seen a couple of, of those directors go through. Um, so pr- pretty, pretty typical stuff, especially for a new administration. Um, but what did come up this week is um, the administration released the um, salaries for um, those directors. And they are um, substantially higher than his uh, predecessor uh, paid his directors. That would be uh, Democratic Governor Steve Bullock. So, um, what does Gene Forte say about why these uh, salaries are so much higher? You know, I I, I think his office, and you can tell a, a bit by how they um, tackle the release of this information, um, is certainly um, trying to get out in front of of the narrative, which um, I, I think 
people immediately jump to of, um, you know, Republicans talking about um, limiting spending and smaller government. Gianforte has already said he wants to cut um, staffing across state agencies. Um, you know, that, that comes in as counterintuitive to then we're going to give, um, you know, up to 46% raises to our department directors. Um, certainly they were conscious of that. And so that they provided quite a bit of information um, along with that release um, talking about how Montana really is um, at the bottom of pay scale for a lot of its agency directors and um, flat out the administration just says um, to be competitive and get the best people, they need to pay more. So what's next for these director nominations? Um, So like I said, they're, they're trickling through, um, We'll see them throughout the session. Uh, it would be very surprising with the GOP legislature that we wouldn't see uh, these people confirmed. Um, even the GOP legislature was, um, you know, certainly friendly to, or friendly might be a stretch, but um, uh, voted to, uh, you know, let the Democrats um, nominate who they wanted to lead the agencies for the most part. So um, we'll see those, those nominations continue. Um the the one thing um, that I think you know is, is of course in some important context for for this is um, you do see um, pay for you know the eleven thousand state employees out there also um, as a discussion right now. Um, there's a bill out there that would freeze um, raises for those employees for um, the 2022 fiscal year, which starts in July, and then they would get a fifty five cent per hour raise in 2023. Um, Obviously, budgeting is a bit of a sausage-making process, so Gianforte is able to propose a budget. The legislature brings their budget, and they, they're going to work on that to get one that uh, lawmakers pass and the governor signs. Um, Gianforte's budget does call for a 2.32% decrease in the upcoming fiscal year, um, followed by a th- nearly 4% increase in the second. Um, but overall, he wants to cut uh, state agency staffing by about 4% or about $24 million. So uh, a lot of the intense debate this week was on the house side as it always is during the start of the session. Uh, but Senate committees weren't without their own moments this week. Tom, let's talk about the crossbow bill. <laughs> so this is a, a bill that has come up. Um, I, I don't know if it's every session, but it's certainly every session I've been involved in. Um, in Montana, you can use a crossbow in any season where you can also use a firearm. Um, but people with um, disabilities, hunters with disabilities, have really had this push um, to allow crossbows uh, for, for hunters with disabilities during the archery season. Um, that would mean uh, a special um, doctor's exemption, similar to what you would get to either have your, your, your archery equipment adapted or hunt from a vehicle. Um, and that that bill came back this week with uh, Senator Brad Molnar from uh, Laurel uh, brought that. He personally um, said he could not no longer bow hunt. Um, passionate hunter, it sounds like. And he, it really was an emotional and, and at times um, kind of contentious hearing in uh, Senate Fishing Game on Tuesday. Tom, isn't there already adaptive equipment on the market for uh, compound and traditional bow archers? Uh, sure, Tom. So typically what you see is called a draw lock. So what that means is that um, once your bow is at full draw, you would have a device that would lock it in that position. So in, in theory, some a hunter with disabilities, um, 
that couldn't draw their bow could then um, still take it and fire it. Um, what um, advocates for people with disabilities and, and certainly some of the emotional testimony we saw on Tuesday, um, that doesn't work for everybody. There are hunters out there that because of upper body um, injuries or limitations um, cannot physically hold a bow up to even shoot it. So you saw a couple people um, who are in wheelchairs say, we have a, a special adaptive rifle rest for our wheelchair. We would also like to use that for a crossbow and be able to hunt during archery season. So what's the argument about why crossbows aren't considered archery equipment like a compound bow or a traditional bow? Sure. So what you saw, and and this has come up again in multiple sessions where, where similar bills have been brought, but um Groups like the Montana Bow Hunters Association and traditional bow hunters in Montana, um, you know, for them, a crossbow is a fundamentally different um, hunting tool weapon than archery equipment. Um, they argue that it has a stock, it has a lot of times a rifle scope on it, and it is um, closer to a firearm than it is a piece of archery equipment, and that um, as such, it would be uh, potentially more effective. Um, at harvesting animals and that could lead to um, an uptick in harvest for an archery season that generally is designed um, with with a pretty low harvest in mind. So is there any science out there that that shows that um, having crossbows during an archery season may increase um, the amount of animals harvested and then would kind of in turn change the way that that season is regulated or uh, would would it be such a small number of hunters using crossbows that it may not make that much of a difference? Um, I think it depends on who you ask um, and sort of what the framing of the information is you're looking at. Um, certainly, the number of hunters, bo- archery hunters who are disabled and would want to use a crossbow would probably be, um, you know, not a huge number compared to the 50 plus thousand archery hunters in the state. Um, on the other hand, though, um, I think there are concerns that in places where um, crossbows have been allowed, they, they've then expanded into um, more widespread use. And um, certainly an animal in close like a bugling bull elk um, is going to probably um, have a better chance of getting away if you have to come to full draw with them in close proximity than if you just have to, uh, you know, take aim and pull a trigger. This, this- you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but this seems like something that is or should be handled by uh, the Fish and Game Commission. Um, is that not true, or do they not have the latitude to make these decisions? So I, I think that's one of the places where the hearing really got um, intense yesterday, um, Tuesday. Um, to answer your question, yes, the Fish and Wildlife Commission could decide to meet and allow crossbows for anybody they want during any season they want um they haven't done that and i think part of it is because of the arguments we just talked about that um there's a at least a a very impassioned theory that archery is very specific to bows and arrows and that crossbows don't meet that that sort of a parameter Um, i think where molnar is coming from is that um he's frustrated um, to the point and he admitted his, how emotional he was about the issue um, that he just, he thinks the legislature needs to step in and take charge on this. And 
they would have the authority to do that under this bill. Have any other states implemented legislation like this, or would we be um, doing something different than has seen before? You know, other states certainly have. Um, I think that's where um, some of the uh, bones of contention came out. Places like Wyoming are, are certainly more um, lax on um, use of crossbows. Um, you know, other states um, have certainly made exemptions for crossbows for disabled hunters. Um, but again, um, you know, if, if you want to go down the slippery slope argument, um, what the archer archery community is saying that we don't want that to um, lead to a wider acceptance, a big surge in people going to crossbows, which would in turn fundamentally change um, the season and the reasons for the season. And the uh, part of that being how, how successful hunters actually are, which is pretty low. So Tom, you just published a story about a hearing on a bill uh, related to uh, Montana's unique big game species permits. Can you tell us about what that bill would do? Sure. So that's a bill from uh, Denley Logie. He's a Republican from St. Regis. Uh, what that bill would do is is take um, special permits for uh, moose, sheep, and mountain goats and turn them into a once-in-a-lifetime permit if you were successful in, in, in harvesting an animal. Um, that would be a pretty big departure from what we have now. Um, right now, you can draw a permit and then you have a seven-year waiting period um, and then you can be get back in the drawing again what's the point what's the point of making these tags a once in a lifetime opportunity so some of these um, permits are unbelievably difficult to draw like less than one percent um guy from the wild sheep foundation was there and, and he talked about how there's 124 bighorn sheep ram permits in montana and you know thirty-five thousand or something people apply for them so i mean we're talking astronomical odds to draw one now montana does have a, a squared bonus point system so if the longer you put in you do have a little bit better chance but um what what that means is that um people that draw it once are very lucky but there are people out there who draw it more than once sometimes twice or three times and um really what people who support this bill say is that somebody else's turn and uh you know it's an, an issue of fairness so the legislator's goal with this is to try and get the opportunity to hunt these unique big game species to more Montanans or more permit holders in general. And, and that, and it would, um, in theory, but, um, as, as some of the, uh, opponents of the bill pointed out, um, it's, it's would move it, you know, from a point, you know, six hundredths of a percent better chance of drawing one of these permits. So, um, what they're saying is that um, actually the the negative side effects of of the bill, um, basically opportunity or people that you know draw it when they're thirteen years old and then never get to put it in again and then lose interest in conservation because of that are a bigger detriment, and that we should really be thinking more about um, for example doing doing bighorn sheep transplants to increase the number of those animals so there's more hunting opportunities. The bill didn't get a vote, correct? Uh, the bill did not get a vote. And, you know, th this is another bill that's come up before and, and unsuccessfully so. Um, but again, it's it's a little bit different landscape with, um, you know, the current uh, 
executive administration and, and the legislature being more Republican. All right, folks, uh, that's another episode of Big Sky Lead. Uh, if you want to keep hearing this, uh, make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts are found. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom.